1971, Rodolfo Leola was a pastor in Spain. And he was also a professor, and he was contacted by a university in Cuba and asked to come teach in the university in Cuba. So he accepted. But the government found out that he was not just teaching classes, he was also evangelizing, preaching at the same time. So they showed up at the school one day and ordered him to stop teaching, to abandon the faith or stop teaching. They said, we'll give you 15 days to decide. Leola said, I don't need 15 days. I don't even need 15 minutes. I won't be back tomorrow. A few days later, authorities came into his home in the middle of the night and arrested him and sent him to a Cuban concentration camp. He immediately began to evangelize the other prisoners there in the concentration camp. And in an effort to keep him from doing that, they transferred him to a different concentration camp. And over the next two years, Leola would be transferred 13 times. The Cuban government decided the best way to rid themselves of this problem was to deport him. So they released him and gave him 30 days to raise $2,000 to get uh, out of Cuba and get to Spain. 30 days later, God had provided $2,010. Leola and his family were sent back to Spain with $10 in his pocket. When he arrived, Leola joyfully explained, I am a missionary to Spain sent by Fidel Castro. (laughs) Similarly, Paul was a missionary to Rome sent by angry Jewish leaders of the religious portion of Israel. The Apostle Paul is probably the greatest missionary of all time. He is the goat of missionaries. If there is a missionary hall of fame, he is in it. He took the gospel to Asia Minor, to places where no one had ever heard the name of Jesus. He took the gospel to more unreached people groups than anyone else ever has. He spent his life preaching Christ after his salvation, his life preaching Christ, making disciples, establishing churches, strengthening churches, training men to be pastors, and writing scripture that gave direction to those churches at his time and all the way down to our day. He took at least three missionary trips, each one taking him a little further than the one before. The first trip covered about 1,400 miles. He left Antioch, which is in modern-day Syria, made his way to the island of Cyprus, then went north up into Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey, visiting approximately eight cities, then returned to Antioch and then down to Jerusalem to give a report to the disciples, the apostles there. His second trip doubled the length, the amount of miles. He traveled 2,800 miles. He visited some of the same cities and then went on further east to Macedonia, where he would visit cities like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, Athens, then down into Corinth and Ephesus, over into Ephesus and Caesarea. This third trip covered basically the same, visiting all the churches that he had established on his second missionary trip. And then one more trip would take him to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. In fact, he wanted to go to Rome, and from Rome he wanted to continue on into Spain. Paul didn't start the church in Rome. It had already existed when Paul wrote this letter, but it could have been started from disciples who were in in Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost or who had met Paul or others some other later time and came to Christ and then moved on to Rome 
and establish the church. But Paul wanted to visit there. He makes it clear in Romans 15 that he wanted to visit there and impart some knowledge to them before traveling on to Spain. He would make it to Rome. He just wouldn't get there the way that he thought. Paul would go to Rome, but he would go to Rome as a prisoner. He would go in chains. He'd be been falsely accused by the Jews in Jerusalem of violating the temple law by bringing Gentiles into the forbidden part of the temple, part reserved only for Jews. Paul didn't do that. But they accused him of that and wanted to kill him as a result of that. But uh, he was spared by the Roman soldiers. And because it was a crime worthy of death, according to the Jews, Paul had to appeal to Caesar to save his life. And that's why he would end up in Rome. But before he got there, while he was still in Corinth, he wrote this letter to the church of Rome. And in it, he explains to us the gospel. He explains to us over 11 chapters the importance of the gospel, why we need it, how it came about, what it does for us, before telling us how to live in chapters 12 through 15 and then saying his goodbyes in chapter 16. Let me give you a brief excerpt in the first 10 chapters here. Chapter 1, man is bound in sin, rejecting the righteousness of God and incurring his wrath. Chapter 2, God, the righteous one, will judge all who violate his law. Chapter 3, everybody violates the law. If we just stopped there, it would be bad news. But God is able to bring about the justification of the sinner, also in chapter 3. Chapter 4, justification comes through faith, not works. A person must believe in God. Chapter 5, just as all who are in Adam are made unrighteous because of his sin, all who are in Christ are made righteous because of his perfection and his death. Chapter 6, though we are made righteous by the death of Christ, we still possess a sin nature and seeks to enslave us. We should rather be slaves to righteousness. Chapter 7, the battle over the flesh and the spirit continues to rage. We end up doing things we don't want to do. We don't always do the things that we want to do. But God's mercy is to be to give thanks for God's mercy because he will not judge us on our ability to keep the law. Chapter 8, God has given us his spirit to graciously work in us and perfect us and causes everything to work together for good to those who, are, who know Christ to be conformed to his image. Chapter 9, God sovereignly chose who to save and who he doesn't save, whom he shows mercy on and whom he hardens. And God in his sovereign wisdom hardened the hearts of the nation of Israel so that the gospel would be rejected by them and then be transferred to the Gentiles. Chapter 10, the simplicity of the gospel is still the only hope for mankind. Chapter 10, in this chapter, we're treated to the heart of a missionary. What it, what it is to be a missionary, what it is to have a missionary's heart. And then the verses that we'll look at, the first 15 verses, will we'll reveal four characteristics of a missionary's heart. And every Christian should have a missionary's heart. We start with the first one. The characteristic of a missionary's heart is a passionate desire to see people saved. A passionate desire to see people saved. Romans chapter 10 verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. The them that Paul's referring to is the nation of Israel. 
He's referring to his fellow Jews. My desire is that my fellow Jews come to saving faith. Every city that Paul visited that had a synagogue, and in order to have a synagogue, there had to be 10 or more Jewish men there, Jewish adult men. If there was a synagogue there, Paul went first to the synagogue and tried to evangelize there in the synagogue before going out to the Gentiles. He'd always wait for the Jews to he'd give the gospel to the Jews first, and after their rejection, he would go to the Gentiles. And he desires them to be saved. He knows God's got a plan. He just explained it in chapter 9 that God has a plan. The hardening of Israel's heart was part of God's plan for the, the gospel to go to the Gentiles. The Gentiles would then be saved, and that would provoke Israel to jealousy, and that would bring them to saving faith. Paul understands that, but it doesn't stop him from begging God for them to be saved. He wanted it so much, if you look back in chapter 9, verse 1, Paul said, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? Who is over all, God bless forever. Amen. Paul is saying there, if it were possible, I would give up my own salvation if that meant national Israel would be saved. That's how much he wants them to be saved. At some point, at one point in Jerusalem, as as Paul was being accused of bringing the Gentiles into the temple, the crowd got so angry that they began beat. Paul, they intended to beat him to death. And they had Roman soldiers not broken in through the crowd and grabbed Paul physically and carried him to safety. He would have been killed. And as they were carrying him, physically carrying Paul up the stairs to get away from the crowd, Paul begged the commander to stop and let him address the crowd. The commander acquiesced and Paul stood there on the stairs and addressed the crowd that was just trying to beat him to death. And he gave his own salvation testimony to them hoping that that would sink in and people in Israel would be saved. But then when he started talking about Jews or Gentiles being saved, the crowd turned again, uh, uh, turned angry again and tried to attack him and they had to take him out of the way for his own safety. Paul understands the sovereign plan of God but still desires Israel to be saved. A true missionary heart wants people to be saved. I would submit that most every Christian in this room has one or more persons that they pray for that they want to be saved. Perhaps it's your children or your siblings or your parents or a neighbor or a friend that you want to be saved. But what about the people you don't know? What about the people in other countries? That's why Paul traveled, because people need to hear about Christ and he wanted them to be saved. A true missionary's heart goes beyond their immediate circle of family and friends to include others that need Christ. A true missionary heart has a passionate desire to see people saved. And every Christian should have a missionary's heart. Secondly, a missionary heart has a determination to stress heart righteousness. A determination to stress heart righteousness. Look at verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
Most, if not all, cultures have some sort of moral code. Maybe written, it may be unwritten, but they have a code of things they accept as good and right and things they don't accept, things that are clearly wrong. Now, those standards may shift over time, but every culture has those. For the Jews, in Paul's day, it was the commands that came through Moses. That was the standard of right and wrong. That was the standard of good and bad for them. And initially, Israel didn't take the laws completely serious, and God brought them into Babylonian captivity for 70 years until they learned their lesson. And after the Babylonian captivity, they figured it out. We've got to keep the law. And in the 400 years that passed between them and the time of Christ, they had learned to, for the most part, exercise the law outwardly, but not inwardly. It became a practice, not a belief. It wasn't something that changed their heart, though some had their hearts changed. Many, if most, would just go through the motions to take The Sabbath, for instance. The Sabbath was extremely important to Jews. They wouldn't break the Sabbath. In fact, it was so important to them that they publicly ridiculed anybody that they believed was breaking the Sabbath. So they wanted to make sure, so much so that they would put laws in front of the laws to make sure that they didn't break the Sabbath. But their righteousness, unfortunately, was a self-righteousness. It wasn't a true heart righteousness. It was what everybody could see. They were like whitewashed tombs. They were nice and pretty on the outside, but inside they were full of dead men's bones. Paul says, I testify that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They have a fervor, a passion for God as they have defined Him, as as what they think He accepts. And their zeal was so strong they didn't want to do anything to violate what they thought was God's standard. But their hearts remained unchanged because it was all an activity. It was all an effort on their part. It wasn't a changed heart. Their zeal wasn't according to the truth of who God is and what he requires. They claimed to be zealous for God, but they're more zealous for their traditions than anything else. Every culture has some people that are zealous for their idea of God. They'll give everything to that God or for that God. But zeal has never gotten anyone into heaven. If zeal is all that is necessary to get someone into heaven, then kamikazes in World War II went to heaven. Because they certainly had a zeal. Those who blow themselves up or fly airplanes into buildings would go to heaven because they certainly have a zeal. The problem is they have a zeal, but not a zeal according to knowledge. They're not, their zeal, what they're zealous about is not what the truth is. They're zealous for a lie, unfortunately. Verse 3, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They think they have everything they need. They don't need God's righteousness. They figure they can have it of their own. They can develop it on their own. Many people think they have all the righteousness they need within themselves. They do what they, whatever they want to do, thinking that God's going to be pleased. Almost every one of us knows someone who believes if my good just outweighs my bad, then I'll go to heaven. 
And the problem with that thinking is they neither know what good is nor what bad is according to God's Word. They're defining it according to their own standards. They think that God will accept what my own righteousness, but what they don't understand is your righteousness, apart from the work of Jesus Christ, isn't worth more than a filthy garment. They don't understand that they are slaves to sin. They are of their father, the devil. Many people live under that that miscomprehension that God's going to be pleased with me one day. I mean, you ask, if you go out and ask the average person, if you died today, would you go to heaven? And of those who believe that there is a heaven, the majority of the people you ask will say yes. And you ask them, why will you go to heaven? They'll say, because I'm a good person. Salvation is not based on our own righteousness, though. It's based on God's righteousness, which comes through Christ. Look at verse 4 of our text. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. Everything points to Christ and His perfect righteousness. Our righteousness is defiled and worthless. Christ's righteousness is undefiled and priceless. We think our righteousness is great because... We define God according to our own image. God will accept what I accept, reject what I reject, overlook what I would overlook. And of course, then in that case, we think we're great and wonderful and God will be impressed. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ put an end to the law since the law was merely a foreshadow of what would happen with Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For the law... Since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. You can do the sacrifices, the Old Testament sacrifices, every day over and over and over again for years, but that will not make you righteous. That was all a picture pointing to Jesus Christ, pointing to the wickedness of sin that needed something to die, and pointing to Jesus as being the sacrifice that we needed. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the righteousness that Israel was after, that they thought they were achieving, was not doing them any good. They were going through it by the motions and it was their own self-righteous works that they were trusting in, not the righteousness of Christ. Verse 5 continues, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. The problem with trying to be righteous according to Mosaic law is you make yourself a slave to that law. You have to keep that law. But you can't keep that law, which is the point of the law. The whole purpose of the law is to show you that you can't live according to the law. No one is that righteousness. Romans chapter 5 verse 20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Law was given to us for the purpose of revealing our sinfulness so it would drive us to the cross and ask for God's mercy and grace and forgiveness. Because we can't keep the law. Man has always believed the lie of the devil, it seems, that he has within himself the righteousness to please God. But our forgiveness and our salvation 
is not something that we can manufacture. It is a gift from God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Verses 6 and 7 in our text speaks of this righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend in the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Paul's questions here, his rhetorical questions is, this righteousness that is in man thinks that it has to go, it has to go find it. It has to go search out for this righteousness. It has to go to the ends of the earth and do some self-effort to get it. But, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we, which we are preaching. The righteousness that God requires is given to us in His Word. And we know it from the preaching of God's Word. The, the lie of Satan is you need to achieve it yourself. You need to work for this and earn it. But the truth is it comes from God alone. Now, most of you sitting here know all these things. This is all review for you. You're going, okay, I get this. Yeah, I understand. It's not my righteousness. It's His. It's, it's all great and wonderful. I get this. This makes perfect sense to me. But do you realize that most cultures in this world don't believe that? If you go to most other cultures in the world, they are trying to earn their way into heaven. Believing that they're going to make it. Everything from buying gold leaf and scraping it onto the side of a building to nailing themselves on a cross in order to appease God somehow. Their version of God. But genuine faith is not based on any works. It's based on Christ. This is the message that the world needs to hear. That's why Paul dedicated his life to give the gospel and spread it around Asia Minor because they didn't know that. They thought they could worship this God or that God or they could sacrifice to, to Yahweh even and that would somehow get them into heaven. That if their works were just impressive enough that God would accept them. But the message that burns in the heart of the missionary is Christ and Christ alone. The missionary desires to free people from the slavery of the bondage to their pagan rituals and their pagan beliefs. The missionary heart wants to free people from the bondage of self-righteousness and show them Christ's righteousness. Verse 9 of our text, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. To confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord is to say, God, I, I believe Jesus is the sovereign ruler, that He is the one whom I must worship. It's to confess that Jesus died in the flesh and was raised from the dead. Now these aren't magic words that open the doors of heaven if you just say the words. It's a belief in the heart. It's a change in the heart. Confession of Jesus as Lord results from believing in the heart. If you confess your, with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead you will be saved. That's an important part because that's speaking of the, the sacrificial death 
and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died as a sacrifice for your sin, as a penalty for your sin, and He was raised from the dead by the Father as proof that the Father accepted His sacrifice. It was a perfect, acceptable sacrifice for the sins of men as evidenced by the resurrection. Verse 10 goes on. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. Because the missionary heart deeply desires people to be saved, it can't turn a blind eye to the teaching which takes men's eyes off of Christ and puts it on anything else. A missionary can't go into a, a, a another land where they're worshiping a false god, where the majority of belief is some pagan ritual and pretend like it's okay. Well, they're just sincere people. At least they, they're sincere in what they do. They can't do that. Those with a missionary heart must say there's only one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And all men must come to the Father through Him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby... We must be saved. And we'll show the world the need for Christ. We'll show them the need for His imputed righteousness. We must show them that it's only through His perfect righteousness and the forgiveness that He provides that we can be saved. Every true missionary has a passionate desire to see people saved and a a determination to stress a heart righteousness, not a self-righteousness. And every Christian should have a missionary's heart. That brings us to number three. A missionary heart has a, certain, has a certainty that the gospel pertains to all. A certainty that the gospel pertains to all. I'm glad that the gospel is not different for each different people group. That is different for one people in the West, and, it's, and then different for people in the East. I'm glad that's not the case. Or even worse, that it's different from person to person. But that's how so many people think. Well, that's what works for you. That doesn't work for me. The truth is, the gospel is for everyone. And there's only one gospel message, and it is for every man, woman, and child who has ever been on the face of the earth. We don't tailor-make the gospel for different people. Because there's only one message. There's only one truth. The work of Christ on the cross is all that people need. And it applies to everybody. Look at verse 11 and following. For the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, according or abounding in riches for all who will call upon Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This applies to everyone. Now, he says Jew and Greek there, and in this culture, Greek is everybody that's not a Jew. So you were either a Jew or a not a Jew, and you could say Greek, or you could say barbarian, or you could say Gentile, and it applied to everybody. So uh, in, for Jewish people, there were Jews and there was everybody else. It's like if you're from Texas. It's Texas and it's whatever. It's Jew and whatever. So we're the whatevers. Greeks, barbarians, Gentiles, it doesn't matter at all, applies to the same person. Paul is saying there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. The same gospel applies to everybody. It's the same message worldwide. The message never changes. 
How we present it may change. How we speak to people may change. But the message itself never changes. The gospel is powerful to save whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Whether you're a male or a female. Whether you're a slave or you're free. Whether you're an adult or you're a child. Whether you're North American or Middle Eastern. Whether you're raised in a Christian home or raised in a Muslim home. It does not matter. The gospel is still the same. It's the same message and it never changes. It doesn't discriminate against any people group. It doesn't apply to Western people and not apply to Eastern people. It applies to everyone. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The blessed hope of Christ is available to everyone who calls upon Him. And those who don't call upon Him will not be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be made equal citizens in the kingdom of God. To have a missionary heart is to be firmly convinced that the gospel is the power of God leading to salvation to everyone who believes. And it's the only hope for mankind. We sometimes get so used to the wacky beliefs that people have. That we just turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. And we go about doing our thing and we go to church and we do go to Bible studies and we read our Bibles and we pray and we build ourselves up and we just ignore those who don't believe like we believe. Like it's... it's it's a choice. Like they can believe one thing, we can believe another, and it'll all be okay in the end. Unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the only way to be born again is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Every Christian should have a missionary heart. A true missionary heart desires to see people saved. It's determined to focus on a heart righteousness, not a self-righteousness. It's it is certain that the gospel pertains to every person. And fourth, a missionary heart understands that there's a straightforward plan to spread the gospel. A straightforward plan to spread the gospel. Being convinced that the, power, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes and calls upon the name of the Lord, we must follow the plan that God has for the spread of the gospel. And it's there in verses 14 and 15. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul asks four rhetorical questions here. How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? Well, if the only way to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord... How are they going to do that if they don't believe in Christ? They're not going to call on Him if they don't believe. And then he follows the logic. Well, how are they going to believe if they've never heard? If they've never heard of Jesus, they've never heard of the sacrifice of Christ, if they've never heard that there's a righteousness from God that can be imputed to man through the blood of Jesus Christ, how are they going to believe in Him? And therefore, how are they going to call on Him? And he continues to follow the logic. How are they going to hear without a preacher? That is, without someone to proclaim the gospel to them. 
If the only way to be saved is to call upon the name of the Lord, how are they going to do that on somebody they never believed in? How are they going to believe in somebody they never heard of? And how are they going to hear of somebody unless somebody tells them? That's our job. We've got to tell them. And he ends that with following the logic. How will they preach unless they are sent? Unless we send people or we go with the life-saving gospel around the world, how are, any, how are any of these people going to be saved? we got to tell them or we got to send people. Those are the only options we have. If we have a missionary's heart, and we should all have a missionary's heart, if we have a missionary's heart, then we desire people all over the world to be saved. And we are convinced that there is only one way to that salvation, and that is through Jesus Christ. And that their self-righteousness will never get them to heaven. They need the righteousness of Christ. And the plan of God for getting that done is to send people with that message to proclaim it to those people. So they can hear and believe and call and be saved. So our responsibility as Christians and as a church is to make sure that the gospel is going out to the ends of the world. And we either need to be going ourselves or sending others to do it or both. If you really believe the gospel... If you really believe that there is only one way for people to be saved. If you believe that people need the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the gospel applies to every human being. You really have no choice. But to support missionaries who go. Or go yourself. If you're not supporting missions work. You really should be. Because this is the way people are saved around the world. And they need our support in order to do it. And we are blessed to be able to support the amount of missionaries that we do. We would love to continue to that to even expand. But we want to do that not because we want to have a large number of missionaries that are supported by our church, but because the world needs Christ. That's why we support missionaries that plant churches where there are no churches and train national pastors to plant churches. Within the the scope of missions, there is room for humanitarian things like digging wells and building clinics. But if we don't give people the gospel, those things are worthless. They're meaningless in the end. We need to be giving people the gospel. So I encourage you to be involved in missions. You can be praying for all of our missionaries. You can be praying for any missionaries that are doing the work of the gospel. We need to be supporting them financially. We need to be going ourselves. We need to be praying that God raises up people within our own congregation to go spread the gospel around this world. Because it's the only hope. There's no other way for people to be saved outside of Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that you would impart to every single one of us a missionary's heart. And Father, we would have the heart of Paul here, desiring people to be saved, so much so that we spend ourselves for that to be done. Father, we pray that you would raise up within our own congregation those who would go to the field, those who would be trained and take the gospel where there is no gospel. Take the training to those men who need more training so they can take the gospel. Father, give us a heart for the world. For those who aren't called to go to the mission field, Father, may you enable them to give so we can send as many as we possibly can. And Father, we pray for your blessings on these missionaries all over the world that many, many people will come to saving faith. Father, we thank you for the men and women that are connected with our church that we support. We thank you for their labor. We pray for their health. We pray for their protection. We pray for their provision. Father, we pray for their success. We pray that you would give them fruit. That the truth of Jesus Christ will penetrate the hardest heart in the darkest places. That, Father, your glory would be known. Let us continue to have a missionary's heart in this church. May that never wane. But, Father, continue to grow in fervency until you come for us. And Father, as we commemorate the Lord's death today, we pray that you would glorify yourself in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I ask you to remain seated as my fellow elders come up and we prepare for communion this morning.